Welcome to our global audience and thank you for joining us for the annual Lord Mayor's Gresham Lecture. Gresham College was established in 1597 thanks to the will of the great financier Sir Thomas Gresham, who entrusted the City of London Corporation and the Mercers Company to jointly administer his legacy. And from that time to the present day, over 400 years, the City of London has taken a great interest in Gresham's mission to provide free public lectures of the highest standard across a huge range of subjects. Uh, we are proud that Gresham is the great, 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 great grandfather of open access, providing the highest quality academic information to anyone who seeks it. And I'm honored to be chairman of the Gresham College Council. This evening, we're going to be hearing from the Right Honourable, the Lord Mayor of the City of London, Alderman William Russell, who will be sharing his views on building back better the city's role in a green-led economic recovery. This is related to his mayoral theme of global UK trade, innovation and culture, with the aim of growing global trade and investment opportunities, championing innovation and promoting a rich and vibrant cultural and creative economy. William has over 30 years experience in finance and business. He has held senior positions in the national and international banking sector. In 1987, he went to work for First Boston Corporation before joining Merrill Lynch in 92 as an investment banker in institutional equity sales, working in Asia, New York and London. And William is accompanied this evening by a stellar panel. To begin with, Dr. Mark Carney, very well known to you all for his recent role as governor of the Bank of England, previously governor of the Bank of Canada, and currently the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance, and Prime Minister Boris Johnson's finance advisor for COP26. We're also welcoming Dr. Rianne Marie Thomas, Rianne Marie was appointed Chief Executive of the UK Government and City of London Corporation-backed Green Finance Institute in 2019. She's chair of the Green, Green Finance Institute's Coalition for the Energy Efficiency of Buildings. She was previously the Global Head of Green Banking and the Founder and Chair of Barclays Green Banking Council. We're also joined by Liv Garfield. Liv took up the reins as chief executive of Seven Trent, the Midlands-based water and waste company in 2014. Before that, she was at BT for 12 years, where her last role was chief executive of OpenReach, their engineering division. She is also CEO of the Council for Sustainable Business and has recently been appointed to the Build Back Better Council, which is co-chaired by the prime minister and the chancellor. I'm honored to welcome the Lord Mayor and our panel members, and we so look forward to hearing from you on these important issues around green finance. Members of our online audience can pose questions via the Ask a Question section. Please do, and we'll try to address a few of those at the end of the event. And now it's over to the Lord Mayor, William. Thank you very much, Lloyd. Good evening, everyone, and it's a pleasure to be here with you all. I'm going to start my lecture with a brief story, which may begin to sound a little familiar to you all. In the second century, both the world superpowers, the Han Dynasty in China and the Roman Empire in Europe, 
were using new trade routes to sell their goods. Trade routes like the Silk Road, which linked Peking and Constantinople. And while they were shipping food and textiles, there was another cargo that no one could see. Diseases, which the separate hemispheres had acclimatized to, were now being shared with those who had no resistance to them. As the scholars of both civilizations wrote at length about their new respective diseases, the world's peat bogs, tree rings, and ice shelves were documenting another shift, namely global temperatures dropping. The fields of wheat and rice, now mostly empty of farmers who were too ill to work, were now experiencing lower rainfall and harsher winds. Both the East and West had adapted to shifts in the climate. But to do that and deal with new diseases was something neither society had faced. How did they react? They were unable to realize the massive risk that these two issues would have on their worlds. So they were unable to help their civilizations, which meant that these two crises created the stage for the fall of the Roman Empire and a series of civil wars in China, which lasted 60 years. Without the right action, global society was severely scarred for over a century. Now let's fast forward about 1,800 years. It's 2021. The world is in the grips of a deadly condition. And with record high temperatures being set every year, we are experiencing another change in the climate, with all the science pointing to this being a man-made shift. There are, of course, certain similarities with our ancient forebears, yet things could not be more different. And that largely boils down to one thing, risk. Today, we know the risk of these two global issues. And we know, the ri that, that we know the risk in responding to them in the wrong way, because calculating these huge risks is an everyday occurrence. It is part of every industry around the world. Indeed, it was our fantastic insurance sector, which started in the city of London after the great fire ravaged many homes and businesses that brought risk into the heart of financial decision making. Now, whenever you apply for a loan, get a bank account, or take out an insurance policy, your risk is calculated. The risks of both these crises have also been realized. With COVID-19, much work has been rigorously and rightly focused on maintaining a sense of normality, which means staying home to protect the NHS and save lives, while supporting sectors that will drive the recovery. And with climate change, Almost all global work is focused on biodiversity and many of the priorities highlighted in COP26, which will now take place this November. Our world leaders will come together to discuss how they would support their societies to achieve significant carbon reduction, including investing in new technologies and shifting to new greener industries, so that by 2050, we will have managed to limit the rise of global temperature by two degrees centigrade. Between now and then is the best part of three decades. 
we will have to respond to the economic fallout from the pandemic. And increasing global temperatures show us that the status quo cannot continue to be supported. COVID-19 has affected our lives more than anything else in modern memory, with the recent levels of UK fatalities at almost three times greater than those sustained during the Blitz. It is with that in mind that I tell you that climate change is a much greater and long-term threat to life, to our whole world, than COVID-19. And every person, every business, and every country has a role to play in overcoming the threat. So we must ask ourselves, what do we do next? I've witnessed, and perhaps my panel have seen this too, an incredible response from business leaders. As we are momentarily paused on our journey down the green brick road to COP26, there is a desire from many industries to use this opportunity to build back better and to build back fairer. Governments and the private sector are looking to find new green and sustainable solutions to many of the economic problems we now faced so that we not only repair and grow from the COVID crisis, but we build an infrastructure that can support the changes we want to see by 2050 and protect us against future risks. What I will focus on today is discussing why the financial and professional services sector is at the heart of these decisions and what the City of London and the UK is doing to ensure any recovery is green and sustainable. When we think of industries that will make the biggest sustainable difference, we normally think of the automotive or energy sectors. Very rarely do we think of the financial and professional services like banking and accounting. But it is, it is this sector that will be the linchpin for all other sectors, indeed the whole world, to turn green. Again, it all comes down to risk. It is a truism to say there is no bigger risk to Earth than climate change. But let that phrase sink in for a moment. What does it mean? It means that as soon as we take into account the risk of climate change, then we must rethink how we value goods, services, companies, and entire industries. Can we continue to value and fund practices and companies that, that destroy the planet, pollute waters, and endanger our vital ecosystem? Of course we cannot. Climate change and biodiversity loss must be at the heart of every financial decision we make. So the businesses that put environmental resilience at their core will be highly valued and desirable. Those industries we think of as game changers in sustainability have that reputation partly because of how the financial market values them. And the financial market, the regulators, banks, stock exchanges, are making green solutions a high priority. Companies that employ these solutions are more likely to get loans, attract more investment on the stock exchange, and be taken up by the consumer. So what was once a risk is now the business opportunity of the century, creating thousands of jobs and profits. And in short, money talks. And what it's saying is, go green or go home. 
Already the UK has made great strides in supporting this green development. Indeed, we are one of the only countries to have made a law to reduce our net carbon emissions by 100% by 2050. But that goal can only be achieved if every single sector in our economy turns green. I am very proud that the UK has one of the world's leading financial and professional services sectors, a sector which has strong historical foundations and the creativity to continually innovate and adapt our offer. And green finance has been a core part of our offer for many years. Like the introduction of the world's first green bank in 2012, the introduction of a new green infrastructure bank, and the Bank of England announcing its stress testing of our financial system, which will test the resilience of our largest banks, insurers and others to different possible climate pathways. This work by the financial sector took centre stage in the UK government's green finance strategy, which outlined two distinct ways for the UK to build on its leadership in this important field. Greening finance and financing green. Greening finance, the taxonomy and regulation of climate-related finance, and financing green, mobilising capital into environmentally conscious projects and companies. We've already touched upon greening finance, but it's worth stating how the UK is ensuring that all financial decisions are rigorously focused on green outcomes. The UK was one of the first countries to set a deadline for all major companies to disclose comprehensive information on their impact on climate change. By ensuring the recommendations from the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, commonly known as TCFD, are adopted as standard practice by 2025. We are working with banks and regulators to understand the potential, or indeed the barriers to, the growth of green finance markets. The London Stock Exchange regularly, regularly provides guidance to its listed companies on how they can meet environmental standards. And we are using our position as a long-standing and influential financial market to further the take-up of green finance internationally. Financing green, then, is how we use this sustainable foundation to support the development and funding of clean growth products and services. I'm not exaggerating when I say that the growth of this market is multiplying at an unprecedented rate. In 2019, funds that were focused on achieving environmental, sustainable and governance goals pulled in $21 billion in new money. Between April and June last year alone, these funds received $71 billion of new money. They are now worth over $1 trillion. To give that number some perspective, the entire US federal budget for this year stands at just under $5 trillion. So to finance green properly, we need to ensure that worthy UK products and services can access these funds. And internationally, ensure investment goes towards projects that support clean growth in other countries. Recently, the Prime Minister issued his 10-point plan to ensure clean growth across the UK. Investment in industries like hydrogen and nuclear power, electric vehicles and sustainable homes will help the whole country build back better. 
and the whole UK financial sector will support this clean growth, ensuring these projects get the sustainable funding they need. One thing I've learned in my real and now virtual travels around the world is this. The money is there. Now all we need are the projects. I am very proud of the City of London leadership in this field, a leadership we are cementing with our climate action strategy, which outlines how we achieve net zero carbon emissions from our own operations in five years time backed with 68 million pounds to support a net zero square mile by 2040. We have also worked very closely with the UK government. And through this teamwork, we created the Green Finance Institute in 2018, which pulls together government, research and financial expertise and identifies practical and commercial means to reallocate capital for a new sustainable economy. There really is no equivalent in the world to the Green Finance Institute. And alongside the World Economic Forum, it set up the Green Horizon Summit, which I co-hosted at the Mansion House last November with Mark Carney. 90 countries took part in discussions and roundtables, watched by over 300,000 people. And you will know it was a time of action, with major announcements about the how the financial sector will help create a climate-resilient economy by 2050 including the UK government's introduction of a new green taxonomy to help firms and investors understand the impact of their decisions on the environment, and how the Treasury would issue the government's first sovereign green bond this year. It was cheering to see such activity and so many countries aiming towards the aspirations of COP26. Ladies and gentlemen, we're all aware of the risks of inaction. And it is positive to see finance beginning to focus on a climate resilient future, which supports a sustainable economy. But we're not there yet. We have yet to reach a future in which every financial decision takes climate change and other sustainable factors into account. A future where everyone is focusing on building back better, or a future in which green finance is simply called finance. So what's next? I believe there are three things we need to focus on. The first, what are the global trends and big ideas that financial sectors must consider when shifting to a climate resilient future on their journey to COP26? Second, knowing those ideas, how do we ensure that action is taken to mobilize capital to support this and the UK's leadership? And finally, third, what does, this all, what, what, what does all this mean for business? How does adhering to these climate responsibilities transform into commercial opportunities? I'm very grateful to have a fantastic panel to discuss each of these points and give their perspective. Our window to act is finite and closing quickly. That's why I'm calling for action. Action now and action through COP26 later this year. Because as everyone knows, if you haven't made a decision to go climate neutral by COP26, you're not part of the solution. You're part of the problem. I believe we all have it within ourselves to be part of the solution and create a sustainable foundation for our society. By embracing this opportunity ahead of us, we can do the one thing which will help us for centuries to come, to build back better. 
Thank you for listening. And Lloyd, over to you. Thank you, William. And I'm sure that go green or go home is now trending globally. It's a wonderful battle cry. I'd now like to uh, hand over to Mark Carney. Mark. Thank you very much, Lloyd. And thank you, Lord Mayor, tour de force, uh, bringing together the core of the agenda and uh, very eloquently said. Look, I think I'd pick up on um, one of your challenges, which are what are the big global trends? Um, and uh, and how do they shape uh, shape this uh, battle? Um, and let me let me highlight three. The first is this commitment to net zero, which really is becoming a global commitment to net zero. It's 130 countries and counting. It's the global giants in the last few months: South Korea, China, Japan, committing the new U.S. administration uh, headed in that direction. And of course, as you rightly pointed out, led by the U.K., the U.K.'s legislation, uh, legislative commitment to net zero. But very importantly, this commitment, these aren't just commitments, they're cascading down into policies uh, in countries. Uh, I'm here in Canada today. Uh, the carbon price will be $170 in uh, by the end of this decade. Uh, that is new uh, legislation coming here. Uh, we have the end of uh, internal combustion engines in the UK and in Europe, uh, the measures on hydrogen uh, and elsewhere. Um, so real policy that's backed up and that will interact with the financial sector and I'll come to that. But the next level is down to companies um, and of the largest companies in the world, uh, we're up to 1200 of our largest companies around the world have committed themselves to move to net zero. And these aren't just written on the back of a napkin. These are commitments that are increasingly grounded in science-based um, transitions uh, towards net zero. So you have that level of action. So that's the first and foremost thing. And what is also happening within that global approach is companies are looking increasingly as true stakeholders um, towards their supply chains, their value chains, and going across that. So their suppliers down to their clients um, and helping to adjust there. The second thing um, is uh, the economics of this movement. Uh, the end of the uh, technologies have shifted quite rapidly over the course of the last decade, 15 years. Uh, we, I think most of us are familiar with um, about a 70% fall in the cost of uh, renewables, renewable power in most jurisdictions, not all, but most jurisdictions are the most economic marginal um, form of generation. And in fact, we expect to see uh, most power this year to come from renewables. Um, but what's also happened, so there's a large proportion of this reduction that can be achieved on economic terms just through turning over the capital stock, uh, making investments out with the old, in with the new, going green, not going home, to uh, re-emphasize your phrase. Um, but what happens because of that and because of this focus on net zero, and this is an important point, is it shines a light also on those areas and technologies we, in which we need to advance. So think hydrogen, which is very promising, but isn't quite there on an economic basis. Direct air capture, carbon capture and storage, again, very promising, necessary in many respects, but needs more investment and more progress. Sustainable aviation, maritime fuels, those types of areas, those breakthrough technologies are now out in the open, if you will. Um, and those entrepreneurs, innovators, and uh, the, uh, the, those who will back them with their capital um, have the opportunity to focus on that. The last big trend is, is what you um, emphasize at the heart of your remarks of this transformation uh, in the financial sector, really led by um, uh, the City of London. I want to salute the Green Finance Institute, the leadership of the Lord Mayor's um, office uh, in this because you've been central to it. Um, the objective, as you rightly pointed out, every decision takes climate change into account. Every financial decision takes climate change into account. 
You need reporting, UK leading with the mandatory move towards TCFD, which the Chancellor announced at your Green Horizon Summit uh, in November. Uh, the UK leading with uh, risk management uh, of banks, the Bank of England, the first major central bank to do climate stress tests, which will be launched uh, just a bit later uh, in this spring. Uh, the UK leading on the return side, some of our largest asset managers, whether it's uh, Schroeder's or uh, Legal in General, Aviva. Now I'm going to offend, I shouldn't have started this because I'm going to offend somebody by leaving them out, but please, you're on top of my mind. Uh, uh, banks like such as Barclays and HSBC making these commitments to net zero. And what that is doing is all of those steps are showing the way, I could say throwing down the gauntlet as you did in your remarks uh, implied, but showing the way for the rest of the world to go. So the, the, the initiative now is to get by Glasgow, exactly as you said, in the financial sector, you have to declare. You either have a path towards net zero and a commitment for that, and you're going to measure it and market and manage it, or you've chosen not to. Um, and it's our job to uh, give everyone that opportunity. Last comment I'll make um, is that um, we do need to uh, build out the market structure uh, as well. Um, a huge element of that, uh, Rand Marie and, and others have been working very importantly on project finance, blended finance, other aspects of market, green mortgages, uh, creating those. Um, there's also important work done in the city led by Bill Winters, one of our bank CEOs. Um, uh, and others from across the value chain in the city on voluntary carbon markets. To be absolutely clear, first and foremost, companies have to re reduce absolute emissions. They need to report, they need to come clean on that. But this is something that will stretch our carbon budget so we can break through with those key technologies, hydrogen, carbon capture, uh, aviation fuel and others. Um, it's complementary, it's catalytic, and very importantly, in the tradition of the City of London, it's cross-border. And last C, if I may, it can bring those co-benefits, including very importantly for biodiversity. Listen, I, I came to hear you and I came to hear my fellow panelists and from the thousands of people who are watching. So I'm now going to hand back to you, Lloyd, uh, so I can uh, so, so we can advance. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for that, Mark. And uh, now I'd like to turn to uh, Rianne Marie. Thank you very much, Lloyd. Firstly, may I thank you, Lord Mayor, both for your lecture and your ardent support for green finance. And of course, to Mark Carney for laying out the very foundations upon which green finance is being built and developing the frameworks that will advance it. As of today, thanks in no small part to the TCFD framework, no financial company can justifiably claim that they don't know that climate change is a source of financial risk or that it must be integrated into financial decision making. And it is on these foundations that the financial services are positioning ourselves to support a green recovery by decarbonizing and by financing the transition of the global economy to net zero carbon, all within the next three decades. Over the past three decades, primarily through burning fossil fuels, we've emitted more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than in all the preceding decades since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. That means we have done as much to alter the stable climatic conditions that have enabled human civilization to thrive since the IPCC released its first climate report and Al Gore published his first book on climate change than in all the millennia that came before. We have caused as much damage knowingly as we ever did in ignorance. And that is a collective failure of leadership that represents a debt to future generations and means we cannot afford any further delay over the decade to come. 
Just as the financial crisis of 2008 and its aftermath impacted the decade that followed, so the legacy of this pandemic will determine the rest of the 2020s. There were green stimulus packages after the crisis in 2008. An estimated 16% of the $3.3 trillion that were allocated to fiscal stimulus worldwide was devoted to low carbon and environmental measures. Much of the other spending, however, went on carbon intensive projects like concrete, construction and coal, which led to a record breaking rebound in carbon emissions of nearly 6% in 2010. But the green investment did succeed in rapidly developing the renewable energy sector, creating millions of jobs and accelerating the cost efficiency of wind and solar power such that today, as Mark mentioned, solar and wind are the cheapest form of new generation in countries covering over 70% of global GDP. And that will be the case everywhere by 2026. What could be achieved if the proportions of green and non-green stimulus were reversed? This once in a generation government spending could be used to create green jobs, reduce inequality and set up new industries for the coming decades whilst generating investable opportunities for financial services to mobilise the billions needed to transform the petro economy of the last century to the electro economy of the future. The UK's Committee on Climate Change estimates that to deliver net zero by 2050, Today's run rate of £10 billion per year, which is currently mostly invested in the electricity sector, with smaller amounts invested in heat, energy efficiency and electric vehicles, that will need to scale up to a peak of £60 billion in 2035 before reducing as various technology costs fall. Importantly, this increased capital investment will achieve significant operational savings. It will also deliver co-benefits such as improved air quality, better health outcomes, as well as those green jobs. The City of London is home to a £20 trillion financial services industry, the second deepest pool of assets under management globally, the third largest stock exchange by market capitalisation, and the fourth largest banking centre in the world. Lord Mayor, mobilising the green investment needed for a net zero fairer economy is achievable, and the City of London, indeed the UK as a whole, should commit to becoming the world's first net zero financial system. But clearly that's not gonna happen by osmosis. Net zero alignment of the UK's annual flows of finance and its stock of financial assets will only require, not, will not only require far greater management of climate risk, it will also need a redirection of capital. Green bonds and their offspring, sustainability linked transition bonds are key tools in this. And we look forward to the first Green Guilt later this year for many reasons, including as a catalyst to further strengthen the UK bonds market. But the task of financing the net zero aligned recovery requires much more. To create the opportunities to deploy capital towards the activities and the assets that are enabling households, businesses and public authorities to make net zero reality, we require systemic sector by sector market innovation strategies supported by policy transition pathways, carbon pricing and financial de-risking mechanisms that increase the predictability of cash flows and promote the development of innovative financial solutions. In practice, that work requires engaging multiple stakeholders who understand the barriers and the investment gaps on the ground. It involves efficiently deploying public finance to crowd in private finance, for example, by providing guarantees 
that can support revenues or residual asset values or to mitigate against losses. The new UK National Infrastructure Bank is crucial to this endeavour. So too the UK's existing public finance architecture, all of which needs to align to the net zero goal. To give you some sense of what this collaborative effort looks like from our own work at the Green Finance Institute, very quickly, one of our mission-led programmes, our Coalition for the Energy Efficiency of Buildings, is made up of more than 200 individual members from finance, property, energy, central and local government, academia and non-profit organisations, all working together to find practical solutions and develop the market for financing a net zero and climate resilient residential built environment in the UK which could unlock an estimated 65 billion pounds investment opportunity over the next decade and create over 150,000 green jobs. The barriers to finance, they differ by sector, although there are common themes regarding incomplete regulation, misaligned incentives, insufficient data and expertise gap that needs to be addressed. But regardless of sector, and whether we're seeking financing for mitigation or adaptation or for nature-based solutions, which is the latest frontier for green finance and for forward-thinking business leaders, such as my friend Liv Garfield, we're able to combine a supportive regulatory and policy environment with the creativity and ingenuity of the city. So that not only will we play our role in building back better, Lord Mayor, but we will be meeting our responsibility. Thank you, back to you, Lloyd. Thank you. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Um, the forward-looking Liv. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, um, thank goodness I can start by saying that I am part of the solution. I'd be absolutely petrified now if I was going to speak as the business voice around the table in terms of people that have got to deliver some of these numbers and not be able to reassure Mark that I'm definitely in on Race to Zero, to reassure, I guess, Anne-Marie that I'm in on SBTs and I'm fully signed up, and to reassure the Lord Mayor that by 2030 I'm going to be carbon neutral. So, thank goodness I start by saying I'm in, psychologically in. When I look at the three questions, I guess, the three discussion points, um, let me build on some of the global trends first and then move on to what does this mean, I think, for anybody who runs a company or a senior in a company, thinking about how on earth do you kind of navigate the path? Because it is a scary path, right, with a good number of sharks on the way to try and get to the end state, which is clearly a beautiful ocean, beautiful planet. So the trends that I would see is, first of all, I think we've got to see carbon and biodiversity as two sides of one coin. We often talk about net zero, but actually the only way that I think any of us can get there is when you realise they are two sides of one coin. The second big trend has got to be innovation. No sector can get there without innovation. And if I look at my sector, when did I think if I ran a small Midlands-based water company that I'd be worrying about carbon capture ideas that are coming for soil carbon capture from Australia on a phone call first in this morning for agriculture, through to chemical-free treatment processes this afternoon, through to thinking about cellulose brick creation from the waste product, through to trying to work with the fashion industry on reduced fibres. It's just a different world now. To get to a, the genuine type of future you need to get to, innovation is so much more varied. But what a lovely challenge if you're a business leader. The third global trend, I think, is this new set, I think this will grow, is that shareholders not only want to try and encourage on topics that they've been energised on for a while, I think this becomes one of their new heartlands. So remuneration has been one of those things that's been a big discussion point for shareholders. But actually, I suspect sustainability and net zero plans become the next big debate. And I think we've seen Unilever be the first company to go live with the fact that they actually want to have an AGM vote on it. I think you'll see others follow, right? I don't think that will be unusual for the best companies in the future. 
And I think lockdown's created more emotional connection to the planet. And we should be really clear about that, right? Whether it's more plant-based eating, whether it's an acceleration to EV, I've just put myself in an electric vehicle, whether it's green blue homes or whether it's more renewable, it doesn't really matter what your choice is. You feel much more connected. And for government, that's hard, isn't it? Because governments can't tell business what to do to some extent. They can encourage a policy. And what we're seeing is that disclosure, although it doesn't sound sexy, although it doesn't feel exciting, it actually does work. Gender diversity is dramatically better since we had disclosure around the reported numbers. I think that'll be true with TCFD. So I think it's got an awful name. Anything that's called four letters is dreadful, I'm afraid. No brand and marketing person would ever allow you near it. But it is going to, I believe, change the world. Right? I do believe that. If we move on to this idea of people talk about mobilising capital, well, there's endless money, isn't there? That's the whole irony, right? Is there's loads of capital available, but it needs a suitable home. And that suitable home is right now, it's quite tricky, isn't it, to try and work out of your finances, what does that suitable home look like? And so we see on any sustainability bond, it's oversubscribed two or three times. It's certainly our experience on the bonds that we've raised. So there is a desire. We know that COP will change the world. The Biden win, combined with countries like Korea that already come in, South Korea that already come in, means that we're going to see a reinvigorated global scene with politicians. And so for business, it will mean upweighting internally their investment policies. For banks, that will mean certainly coming and making big choices. And I would have named some of the same brands as Mark did uh, without also offending people. But certainly Barclays 2050, when that first got announced, was bold, right? And Aviva today is timely. So in both of those, you can't help but look at it and say there is a real movement here. And what we know about leadership, chief execs, we're always apparently 5% different from being a megalomaniac, but we also like to play catch up. We don't like to be left behind. We don't want to be the laggard. We're seeing that really begin, I think, in terms of leaders set standards, but others follow. And I love that fact. I'm very happy for someone to follow and overtake me. As a company, we've announced £1.2 billion on environmental topics over the next five years. But I'm perfectly happy for someone to announce £1.5 tomorrow because that's all good for the planet. It's a race to success, not a race to beat somebody else. So what does this mean if you're on the call and you are a leader? I think the first thing it means is that you can't do this as a side project. You can't run your business and then have sustainability as a kind of like an extra kind of like, oh, I need to get ahead of sustainability or I need to get a thing. It isn't like that. Your business now is to deliver your business in a sustainable manner. It doesn't mean that the answer for the short term might not be to have somebody whose role it is. It's just it won't work for the long term if you haven't truly got this right in the heart of your entire senior team, that it's everybody's ownership topic, not one person's. I think there's going to be a game of pressure to kind of commit to things. But you're not going to be judged on a commitment. You're going to be judged on the deed. So signing up to 2030 net zero sounds hard. Delivering 2030 net zero is going to be so much tougher. And that's an amazing opportunity for brilliant, brave leaders. But I suspect that's where the topic will move as to what progress people have made. So to just give a few examples to end my section, the things that I will have to do literally in the next few years alone to get my company to net zero. And we're actually um, quite a big, I guess, emitter, you could argue. So we actually use 0.4% of the UK's emissions on our own as one company. So we're right up there. We're the fourth highest emitting sector is water. If you think of all the sheer scale of energy, but also more importantly, the process emissions that come out of the waste product. So, of course, I'll make my fleet electric. Of course, I'll begin to look at you know, planting probably a couple of million trees. I'm also going to convert 5,000 hectares of land. That's a city the size of Gloucester into biodiverse wild land. I'm working with 9,000 farmers on what they can do with their land, whether it's I'm funding little schemes for them. So you know, riparian strips of land to be able to look after it. I'm moving away from concrete and I'm going to take big, bold moves on plant-based infrastructure. You can't constantly put cement in the ground and be green. It doesn't work, right? They're kind of anti each other. 
I'm self-generating 54% of my energy needs, having spent over £300 million on green energy. So little known, but I have five different energy types in an entire business. I've put my entire design team in-house, so I've moved away from having external engineers and created a few hundred engineers that have got carbon, carbon, carbon at the front of their brain. I'm going to have to look at new things, whether it's sewer heat and creating energy from that, or whether it's ammonia products. I don't even know what the answer is, but I know I've got to create more offset products. And across all of that, I've got to educate every single one of my 7,000 colleagues that this isn't just a fad, a short-term thing, the latest chief exec's idea. This is our business. This is our planet. It's our future. And only if every single one of us plays our part do we get the chance to create something special. Over to you, Lloyd. Thank you. Well, you've you've all been so stimulating that I am getting deluged with questions from the audience. So let's get cracking. Um, the first question um, is directed to the Lord Mayor. In November, the UK is looking forward to hosting the international climate community for COP26. There are five campaign aims, adaption and resilience, energy resilience, clean transport, nature and finance. And action on finance underpins all other COP campaigns. How is the City of London ensuring that finance is delivering on these important issues? Oh, I've got to just get to the... the oh, I'm off mute. There we go. Uh, thank you, Liv. Um, I just saw Riamri's reaction when you talked about not using cement anymore, and I thought that was wonderful. I wish I'd managed to to take a take a, a, a picture of that, uh, Lloyd. To, to answer your to answer your question, um, it, you know, we're when it when it comes to COP twenty six, we're doing uh, intend to do uh, a, a huge amount, galvanising the whole of the finance industry uh, uh, to support the priorities of COP, um, and it's going to involve and, um, and and my good friend Mark Carney knows this something called green perspectives or green teas. It would have been unfair to create green breakfast and. For him to get up very early in the morning and Canadian time, but anyway, he's very kindly committed uh, to that. And what we're going to do is we're going to take each of the finance sectors uh, and and talk about what we can achieve. Each sector can achieve, and that can be asset management, it can be insurance, etc. And we're going to keep that momentum going of where finance can play its part uh, uh, with these. With the and we're also going to host a series of virtual events where we'll spotlight uh, the financial and professional services uh, steering us towards a, a greener future. Uh, and I know Rianne Marie and Liv uh, will be will willingly be part of that uh, since they've done such an outstanding job at this particular lecture. Uh, but uh, and, and then finally, with COP, there is a plan afoot where we may hold a, a create a finance uh, uh, pavilion uh, where we can bring finance together uh, to discuss uh, what, uh, what what we can do. But really stepping back to my key point, finance is the, is part of everything to do with COP and the green now. And, and I think everyone's recognising that. And it's, uh, it's a very good thing. Wonderful. Thank you, William. Um, I have a question directed principally at Mark, and it's about the threshold, I suppose, between idealism and real politics. How can governments be best persuaded to stand by their green commitments at this time of great global growth uncertainty? Uh, well, the first thing is, is governments doing uh, what the people want, and it's pretty clear that this is what the people want. There has been a, a, a big, big shift in uh, in public attitudes, the urgency of this. I think Liv said it rightly uh, as well. It's been reinforced by the personal experience 
uh, we've had with uh, during this uh, very difficult last year, but but the connections that have been established. So the first is government's doing what they're supposed to do, which is to serve the people um, and, uh, and and their objectives. Secondly, actually, there is a real politic to this, and there's a real economic, if I can put it that way, to this, which is that actually a number of the things that Liv was, uh, was speaking to, um, these are actual, I mean, they're capital intensive and they're job heavy. And that's exactly what we need to get out of this situation. We need to invest and we need to create jobs and jobs obviously of the future, not of the past. And and one of the things, um, uh, Rianne Marie um, rightly highlighted the 16% figure 12 years ago when we came out of the financial crisis, only 16% on green. Well, it turns out the countries that spent much more than that, South Korea, for example, China, uh, Germany, all uh, much heavier spending on green, they leapfrogged ahead um, in terms of competitiveness in those areas. And thirdly, what's happened as well is that the progress we've made, others have made, I haven't made any, but they've made in engineering and uh, these technologies, um, have meant that actually job heavy, investment heavy opportunities are about the sustainability uh, agenda. And you see a lot of that in the 10 point plan of the UK government. Um, so there is an alignment here without question, and uh, there is a competitiveness element to this, which is being recognized. Last point, if I may, which is stepping away from governments and going back into the city. Um, people are looking to do the right thing, but they're also uh, recognizing, um, it was I thought it was a clever play on words in um, the Financial Times over the weekend, that green is good. Um, now, just think back of what that first word used to be uh, back in the 1980s. Um, and there is an alignment between profit and planet. Thank you. Um, Rianne Marie, what, what, do business, what do businesses need from regulators to accelerate this process of building back better and greener? I think, as I touched on, and uh, thank you for the question, Lloyd, that I touched on during uh, my short speech, was what we really do need to see are long-term policy and regulatory pathways, such that uh, in order for the finance community to invest, we don't we don't need stop-start, we don't need uh, you know big flashy announcements that then aren't aren't followed through. What we actually need is long-term pathways to give us confidence, to give us the ability to invest. Um, unfortunately, that the ten-point plan the net zero, mobilizing capital towards net zero. These are all longer term uh, signals that are giving business leaders, as we've heard from Liv, that ability to, to make longer term investment decisions, which we can support as a financial community. Okay, let's try this one. Liv, directed to you. Nature and biodiversity are the new frontiers for green finance. This is vastly more complex than climate. How do we go about valuing nature and translating it into financial risk and opportunity? It's a brilliant question. And I think we've got a number of tools that will come out in the next period of time. I think one of the big things for business leaders that's tricky is we all understand carbon. We know you measure it in kilotons and you know you need to get to zero. It's kind of like it sounds on, on paper, not complicated. The achievement of that being a different league, but at least it's understandable. If you look at biodiversity, there's been this missing almost like nomenclature as to, as to how to do it. And two things I think will change that. Das Gupta comes out later this week. 
that Dasgupta review will give a huge amount of insight and I think will be quite digestible as to what the context and the framework is. And then the Council for Central Business, um, just to plug something that we're working on, are putting together a business book focused for business, so a set of resources online digital that will look at the top 10 sectors that, both, that most need to really embrace biodiversity improvement to deliver the planet change we're talking about. And that will come out over the course of the next few months. And there's no doubt that'll be an invaluable tool to help people. So I think people would love it to be as simple as give me a, me a measure. And I don't think a measure is as simple for kilo versus kilotons. But I think by sector, it's becoming increasingly evident what the top five no regret moves are. And that's what the uh, CSB book will do, is it will highlight for the largest 10 sectors that really are at the heart of the problem. Here's five no regrets moves. Here's how you do them. And here's the impact they'll have. And that means that at least we can make progress whilst we wait for the kind of measurement to catch up. I can see Rianne, Marie and Mark are both in on that topic. So I'll let them jump in. <laughs> yes, Rianne, Marie. Um, I'm very much looking forward to the CSB's biodiversity book. There was, and obviously tomorrow we've got the Descupta review coming out. The other, and at the risk of your wrath about branding, Liv, the other project is the TNFD, the Task Force on Nature-Related <laughs> Financial Disclosures, which now boasts over 73 different members who are all working towards defining how that task force, when it is set up properly in uh, May or June next year, how it should tackle this really complex topic, recognising that whilst nature and climate are two sides of the, of the same coin, and there's a lot we can learn from the path of climate and how we've uh, incorporated that into financial markets, we're going to need to break down nature into its constituent parts, deforestation, land use, oceans, pollution, and look at what the materiality matrix looks like in, by jurisdiction as well as by industry sector. So huge amounts of work to do. Um, and I'm very pleased to say that the Green Finance Institute is uh, helping drive the, the TNFD work um, alongside a number of other co-chairs and uh, supporters. Uh, Lloyd, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to come back on the previous question uh, about regulatory and, and legal frameworks, if I remember. Uh, and the answer is that, yes, that they will have to adapt. The demand is going to be there for all these legal uh, firms and the regulator. And, and I just step back on the regulator and look what Mark did when he was a governor of the Bank of England. But let's use an example of fintech. Uh, the FCA regulator single-handedly, by, by doing what they did around fintech, we are the fintech center of the world because the regulator adapted accordingly. And I think um, I'll let Mark jump in because he knows more about it than me. But you'll find that the, the, legal, the legal business and the regulator will adapt because they recognize, firstly, remember the FCA has a mandate to look after the consumer. And the consumer wants this to happen, the greening uh, of society. So I think you'll find that, uh, that, that, that the lawyers and regulators, and tell me if you've ever found a, 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 a poor lawyer, they will take this opportunity up and, uh, and make sure that they do adapt. But Mark? Well, I, I, I think that's right. And I think they're adapting for the right reasons and with the with the right intentions. And I think what we find in these situations is that, um, for example, with the TCFD, the lovingly branded TCFD, so wonderful that it's been copied, I might notice, or improved upon with the TNFD, which is, I, I will say that on the nature based is incredibly important. Um, it is important that uh, there was a period of private sector development, experimentation, use of this type of disclosure, deciding what's decision useful, what uh, can be efficiently disclosed, and what focuses on the issue at hand. But 
And the private sector can take it a certain degree, and it has, but then the regulators play their role and the governments play their role. And I think the UK government and the FCA have done this exactly right, which is they've come in, the pension regulator as well, and phased in mandatory uh, TCFD. Um, and, and that will provide a level playing field, level information, consistent information uh, in order to allocate capital in, in the right way. Um, it's, um, there, but there are a host of uh, areas, and I'll, I'll flag one other one, which is I still think needs private sector development. And I'll hand back to you, Lloyd, which is uh, judgments around scope three emissions um, uh, are, uh, are evolving. There's the simpler sectors, if you will. The energy sector, the automobile sector, it's relatively straightforward to say that, you know, the scope three emissions are the most important elements there. Uh, but many other sectors uh, capturing what you capture in the uh, in the value chain, where you allocate it, um, uh, the quadruple or quintuple counting of the same emissions. Of course, it creates very powerful incentives. But at some point, um, uh, those judgments will need to be um, refined um, and and regularized. Last point, if just while I have the uh, open mic, um, is that uh, I really want to underscore the importance of the biodiversity agenda, and I'm very pleased to see that it is coming center stage. There'll be a huge amount of innovation that's necessary, and I think it was exactly right. I believe, Liv, uh, you made this point, which is it's two sides of the same coin, and we will not get though to it's the climate is a necessary but not sufficient condition obviously for biodiversity and it it takes a a deliberate focus uh, on this and and that is beginning um very quickly uh, very quick answers can green finance help to address the toxic political and social consequences of growing income and wealth inequality Yes, it can create jobs. So three things it can do. Number one, it can create much needed jobs. Number two, in a perfect world, some of those jobs create a nicer atmosphere. So for example, greener towns, greener cities. And the third thing we can do is we can target where we put the investment to parts of the country where social mobility is maybe more needed. So I think this is total choice spend and we can grow back greener. And I would agree. I would agree agree with that. And if, as it, in my in my speech, um, I talked about build back better, but I also said build back fairer. So this just transition uh, is absolutely critical part of what we're trying to achieve and what the politicians are trying to achieve. And the prime minister sees it as part of his leveling up agenda. Green is very much part of that. Excellent. Well, thank you all for such stimulating and indeed inspiring thoughts. Thanks very much to our audience for joining us this evening. You can see more Gresham lectures on our website, including upcoming lectures by Jackie McGlade, who's Gresham's Professor of the Environment, on how to build a just and prosperous planet, something we're all looking forward to. And of course, you can see the Lord Mayor's previous event on culture, creativity, and the culture mile. Thank you all very much indeed. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you, and good night. <laughs>